Good morning. I was uh, reminded when the choir was singing what a joyous thing the Incarnation is. Uh, and it, it made me think that my sermon is way too serious. Um, but, but the Incarnation is incredibly serious. Um, it, it is a serious thing that God took on flesh to meet our need. And so uh, I want to pray as we begin this morning that we'd be able to hold those two things together. The, the seriousness of the Incarnation, but also the incredible joy of it. So let's pray together before we get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and for your word, and that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. I pray that uh, you would help us to understand. We don't presume that we could come to your word this morning and, and with our own strength and power understand it. But God, we, we know that we are dependent upon you, and we humbly ask that you would help us to see you in your word. Help us to understand it. Be our teacher this morning and reveal yourself to us again through your word this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Two weeks ago, uh, Tom started this series uh, called Far As the Curse is Found. And the idea is that uh, we want to present the story that the Bible uh, presents uh, kind of this redemptive history, this redemptive story that it lays out. And specifically, since it's Christmas time, we want to look at how the incarnation sits or rests in the story. How does it fit into this overall story that God is revealing in the Bible? Two weeks ago, uh, Tom started with creation. And <clears throat> it really um, is the beginning of the story for a lot of reasons, um, but one, because it's in the first book and the first chapter that, that God created. So um, we, we, it's a good place to start. In, in Genesis 1, we have this picture of God that he is uh, powerful, that he is um, he's, he's transcendent in Genesis chapter, chapter 1. He's completely different than anything that we can relate to. He, he spoke the world into existence. He created from nothing. These are things that we, we can't even relate to. It, it, it's so completely other it's it's different than us and, and so God is transcendent he, he almost seems unapproachable in Genesis chapter 1 and then in in Genesis chapter 2 he continues to to reveal himself as as this um, as this transcendent God who has made himself imminent he, he created us uh, humanity for relationships and he created us to have relationship with creation he created us to have relationships with each other, and he created us, most importantly, to have relationship with him. And, and we see that in Genesis chapter 2, that he, is, he, he talks to Adam, and they, they are, are sharing in things that God shouldn't be sharing with Adam, and, and naming his creation, or, or stewarding over things, and, and yet he is, he is allowing Adam to be a part of that, because we see that it's God's desire that he be in relationship with mankind. So Genesis 1, Genesis 2, those are incredible pictures of God, his, his transcendence, but yet his imminence, his desire for relationship with us. And then we get to, to Genesis chapter 3, which is what Tom talked about last week, which is the fall of man. And, and the fall is, is uniquely terrible in light of, of, 
of Genesis 1 and 2, that, that God created everything and that we owe him our very existence, that if it weren't for him, we wouldn't be here. And the same is true for Adam and Eve. They, they owe their life and breath to him every second of every moment, and yet they chose to use that life and breath to rebel against him, to grasp for equality with him, to, to do what he had forbidden them to do. And so uh, it, is, it is terrible. And they fall from their position and their relationship with God is, is severed. And sin enters the world and God pronounces the curse that, that Tom mentioned last week. But in, in light of this story that is unfolding, where does the incarnation fit into it? In other words, why did Jesus need to come? Tom left us last week after the fall with a dilemma. We have this terrible problem. We are created for fellowship with God, but we have been removed from that fellowship because of our rebellion. And this curse has been pronounced and it affects us and it, ha- it affects uh, creation at large. It affects everything. Everything is under the weight of this curse. We've been given life and breath by this God who created all things and deserves our absolute obedience. And yet we haven't given it to him. Starting with Adam and Eve, we have all gone our own way and we have this curse that hangs over us. And Tom gave word last week, though, to this idea that even in the pronouncement of the curse, there is this hope. That there is this glimmering hope of a promise that is made by God. And what is known as the first gospel, we're told that a seed or an offspring will come from Eve who will crush the head of the serpent. In other words, there is one who will come and make right all that has just been made wrong in the fall. There's one who will come through the offspring of man that will have the power to reverse this curse that has come upon us. So if you were to pick up the Bible and start in Genesis 1, on page 1 in verse 1, you would begin to read and you see this picture of God and His transcendence and then His his desire for fellowship with us and then the fall, and you hear the pronouncement of the curse, and then there's this promise of an offspring, and you're moving through the story, and you can imagine the excitement when you get to Cain. That there's been this, there's been this pronouncement by God that the offspring of Eve will crush the head of the serpent, and so you get to the first offspring, and you have to think, is this the one? Will he be the one that crushes the head of the serpent? Will, will he bring deliverance? Will he make right everything that has been made wrong? But it's not long until he shows that he is clearly not the one. When he kills his brother, it becomes obvious that he has been deeply affected by the curse himself. From there, it doesn't, it doesn't get much better. You see in Genesis chapter 5, which Tom gave word to last week, the generations of Adam, they, each one ends with, and he died, and he died, and he died. And you see that sin and the curse is reigning over humanity. That its effects are being felt by everyone. Everyone is dying because sin has entered the world. We live and then we die. Because we're all under this curse, this reign of sin. It gets so bad that that God decides to destroy all of humanity, save except for Noah and his family. 
It quickly goes bad after that again. You have the, the Tower of Babel where again humanity is reaching for equality with God. And then we get to the story of Abram. God calls Abram out of his pagan worship to move to a new land and start a new people. God promises Abram that he will be the father of multitudes of nations. He tells him that all the nations of the world will be blessed through him and his offspring. And again, our excitement begins to grow. God is again talking about offspring. He's talking about all the nations being blessed or made happy. He's talking about reversing the curse. Even after all the failure that we've seen in man up to this point, the wickedness, the rebellion, God is still moving us toward this offspring that he promised in Genesis chapter 3. Next we have Isaac, the son of promise, who gives birth to Jacob, who gives birth to the nation of Israel. God is moving his plan forward. God is fulfilling his promises to Abraham. The the nation of Israel multiplies. God gives them the land that he promised them. But they're still waiting for the one who will be the deliverer. We come to David, and he is a great leader points the people to God, and God again makes a promise. He promises David that he will raise up for him an offspring, and his offspring will be established forever. That he will sit on the throne forever. So again, God's plan is moving forward. An offspring is coming who will make right all that has been made wrong. One is coming through the line of Abraham, And David, who will reign forever and will bless every nation on earth. Solomon comes as David's immediate offspring, and he is certainly a great king. But his throne does not last forever. Many kings follow him, and then the people end up being exiled from the land. And we're left wondering, what has happened to God's promise? Will all the nations be blessed through Israel if they they aren't even in the land that God promised them? Can the reign of David's heir really last forever if there is no throne in Israel to sit on? Who is this promised offspring? When will he come? Can God bring this promised offspring to reverse the effects of the curse that we all bear? The Old Testament ends with, with Israel moving back into the land, but there is still no king. Everyone is left wondering, where is the Deliverer? Malachi, the last prophet to speak, speaks of promises and prophets to come, but then silence. Nothing. For 400 years, the people are left waiting and hoping. And then we come to John chapter 1, which is what we are going to study this morning. If you have your Bibles, open them to John chapter 1. And I want to start reading in verse 1, because really John is going to do the same thing that I just did. He's going to begin in creation and move us from creation to our hope. John 1, starting in verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave to right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. What John presents here in, in, his, in the first part of his gospel account is, is what is really so profound about the incarnation or, or Jesus coming in the flesh. It's that the, the one who made all things, the, the same God who spoke all things into existence, is the one who comes to save us from our rebellion. He is the promised offspring. So starting with verse 14, we see that God became flesh and dwelt among us. And I, I want to ask this morning, what does that mean? What did it mean to him? What did it cost him to reach down to us in this way? Paul gives us some commentary in Philippians chapter 2. Starting in verse 3, it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I think it's impossible for us to really grasp what is being said here. When we consider the incarnation, we have to try getting our minds around the fact that Jesus was God. And that he abandoned his rights and privileges as God to make himself nothing. We don't even have a, a category for that. There's nothing for us to compare that to. The best that we could, the best that we could do would be to consider the most uh, powerful, wealthy human to ever live. And, and, and that person would give up all that they have to become a, a slave in some impoverished country. But even that is inadequate. That's still a man becoming a man just in a different position. This is God. The incarnation is about God becoming a man and Him leaving behind all that was rightfully His in position and power 
and becoming weak, becoming like one of us. One uh, thoughtful Christian author reflecting on the incarnation wrote this. He says, the, the word became flesh. God became human. The invisible became visible. The untouchable became touchable. Eternal life experienced temporal death. The transcendent one descended and drew near. The unlimited became limited. The infinite became finite. The immutable became mutable. The unbreakable became fragile. Spirit became matter. Eternity entered time. The independent became dependent. The almighty became weak. The loved became hated. The exalted was humbled. Glory was subjected to shame. Fame turned into obscurity. From inexpressible joy to tears of unimaginable grief. From a throne to a cross. From ruler to being ruled. From power to weakness. It is simply impossible for us to grasp that. How can we wrap our minds around the idea that the one who is everything made himself nothing? We may not be able to to fully grasp it, but it's obvious how it should apply to our lives. Paul, Paul gives us that, in fact, in the first two verses of that passage in Philippians that we read. And he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, what he's saying is imitate Christ. Just as Christ abandoned his rights and privileges as God to be poured out, to be made nothing for you, so you ought to abandon yours for others. Consider others as more important than yourselves. Consider Christ who has done that for you. So, Husbands, next time you stand over a household chore that you don't want to do, that you're, you're irritated that it has fallen on your plate again, you're thinking back over the last couple weeks how many times you have done that, trying to figure out why it's your time that gets wasted on this chore over and over and over again. Remember the incarnation. Because what's at the root of your frustration is this idea that you think that you are above that job that you think you've already done your share that you think you've done enough already i've got more important things to do than this it's really quite embarrassing when you consider the incarnation did did christ deserve to be the one who was emptied on your behalf Was the one who was above all things, was it his place to make himself nothing for you? Did he deserve to be humiliated in front of the ones he created? Absolutely not. He didn't deserve that, but he chose it for you. That should empower us to consider the needs of others as more important than our own. Maybe you, you struggle with your role of service in the church. You think no one, no one sees what you do or no one thanks you. Maybe you wish you had a different job. Maybe you're a mom who sometimes feels you couldn't possibly clean up one more mess or drive one more kid to practice. 
Maybe you're a son or daughter who resents the fact that your parents make you help with chores around the house when none of your friends have to do stuff like that. Maybe you're an employee who is constantly frustrated and angry that you have to do things that are not included in your job description. Let us all consider this morning the one who was above all, but willingly took the place of a servant. Looking back at John 1, now that we have, we have some idea what it costs him, we, we have to ask the question, what did he accomplish that was worth this level of sacrifice? Why was it so important for him to come? Starting again in verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. That would be the first thing that I would present to you that He accomplished, is that He showed us His glory. We saw Him full of grace and truth. Verse 18 really explains why this is so profound. It says, No one has seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. What He's saying is that this God who cannot be seen has been made visible. This God that we serve is is far too glorious for us to look at. He's far too majestic for our, our human eyes to take in. We cannot comprehend the perfections of His character or the limitlessness of His power and might. But He clothed Himself with flesh so that we might see Him. He has emptied Himself so that He can reveal Himself to our weak eyes and minds. Now, the the glory that He displayed is connected to the grace and truth mentioned at the end of the verse. Clearly, there's a connection between the glory of the Son and the grace and truth that He displayed. But I I happen to think that there's a very, very close connection. I think that the glory of God was was most wonderfully or most profoundly displayed in the grace and truth that was made visible in Christ. Verse 16 gives us more on this idea of grace and truth. It says, For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. What does that mean? What is grace upon grace? In verse 17 he continues, he says, For the law was given through Moses... Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So what is he saying? He's giving us the explanation of grace upon grace. He does that through drawing this this contrast between what Moses brought, which was the law, and what Jesus brought, which was grace and truth. Romans 5 tells us that the law came in to increase the trespass. Now, that doesn't doesn't mean that the law of Moses made people more sinful. But what it was intended to do was make us all more aware of just how sinful we really are. God wanted us to know how desperately we needed this deliverer. He wanted the eyes of every man looking for this offspring that would bring the fulfillment of this hope that God had been pointing to. He wanted us to know that our hope was not going to be found in winning God's approval through our good deeds. He wanted us to know that we needed something more than that. We needed one who was perfect. We needed a lamb without blemish. We needed one that would shed his blood to satisfy the requirements of the curse that God had pronounced upon sin. And this is where the joy of the incarnation is. 
is that now in John 1, that hope has appeared. And he is full of grace and truth. Where the law brought guilt and condemnation, Jesus Christ now brings forgiveness and restoration. Where the law brought death, now Jesus brings life. This is why we we celebrate the incarnation with, with gifts and singing and festive gatherings because hope has entered the story. The hero has come. The one who can reverse the effects of the curse has burst into the story. He has come onto the scene. God has overcome the greatest hurdle, which was to provide a sinless sacrifice so that he could be both just and the justifier. He has done the impossible. So how do we respond to this? How does this news of God bringing forth the Deliverer change the way that you look at life, work, marriage, or parenting? First, it should give us a desire for obedience. As we consider the the cost that Christ embraced for us, and all that he gave up on our behalf, we should be overwhelmed with gratitude that overflows into obedience to his commands. We should desire to live as he lived. We should, de- we should desire to have the mind of Christ, the, the attitude of Christ, that we would be pouring ourselves out, making ourselves nothing in imitation of what he has done for us. And here's the joy in that. The joy in pouring yourself out the way that Christ has emptied himself for you is that in those small things, in those moments when you can do something that is below you or that you deem um, less important than you, when you willingly choose that out of love for someone else, considering their needs as more important than yours, what you are doing in that moment is, is providing for them the smallest picture of Christ. That they see in you this this love that has been expressed to you and that is now overflowing from you onto them and they see this this picture of Christ in what you're doing. That's where the joy of this, it's not just just obedience for obligation's sake. It's not just that, well, Christ did that for me. I guess I should do it for other people. But but husbands and dads, it's it's choosing to do those things that you don't want to do because you get to be this reflection of Christ to your family. That these ones that you love, that you want them to turn to Christ, you get to be a picture of Christ to them. The aroma of Christ in your home. That you might be the aroma of of life to them. We should have a greater confidence as we approach the throne of grace. Maybe you've come this morning overwhelmed with guilt and shame because of your recent failings. Consider the grace of God that is made known to us in Christ. Turn from sin, which can never satisfy, and embrace the one who came to give you abundant life. Jesus said that he came to make all things new. In him there is life, and there is, there is life abundant, and, and, and it is found in fellowship with God that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. We should have a greater confidence in a God who has proven himself faithful to us. God made a promise of deliverance and he fulfilled it. He has proven that there is nothing he will withhold from us. As as Romans 8 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
Maybe this morning you have come overwhelmed by the circumstances that you're facing. Maybe you're wondering, will, will God provide all that I need? Is God able to do all that I need Him to do in this situation? And the answer, if you reflect on the incarnation, is yes. He, he can provide all that you need and He will provide all that you need. Through Christ, the nature of His glory has been revealed. He is full of grace and truth. And from His fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Let it be always on your lips. May we remind one another of this grace that we have received, especially during Christmas. As we think about the Incarnation, as we celebrate it over the next few days, may we be reminding one another of this grace that has been received. May we be pointing one another to God in the way that He revealed Himself in Christ as He came to dwell among us. So in the story, God created the world. He created man to rule over it and to live in in fellowship with Him. He he showed Himself powerful and transcendent. He, he He showed Himself worthy of all of our obedience and praise. But man rebelled against God. We at times doubt His goodness. We question whether or not He really wants what is best for us. Sometimes we think maybe He's withholding some pleasure from us. Maybe it would be better to go our own way. And through that we have all participated in in the rebellion. And we are rightful recipients of the curse that has been laid on creation. But God, in the display of His glory has sent us one who has the power to reverse the effects of this curse we all bear. He promised an offspring. And you watch him work his way towards that promise all through the Old Testament until you get to John chapter 1 and he says that the, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he displayed his glory that from his fullness we received Grace upon grace. That's why the angel in Luke chapter 2 says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. This is the greatest news that has ever been pronounced in all of humanity. This curse that we all universally experience has been made right in Christ. He comes to make all things new. He is in the process of redeeming all of His creation until one day all will be made new. And God will again dwell with His people. We'll close our service this morning with a time of corporate prayer. I'll start and then you can feel free to respond to God through prayer and an elder will close us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, the way that you have revealed yourself to us, especially the way that you have revealed yourself to us in the Son.
that he came to dwell among us that we might see his glory. God, thank you that you are faithful, that you are powerful, that you are good enough to make us promises and then you are powerful enough to carry them to completion. God, help us to rest in the promises that you've given us, knowing that you are willing and able to do all that you've said you will do. God, I pray that we would hold together the seriousness and the joy of the incarnation as we move into Christmas. That all of us would meditate on the coming of Christ into the world, all that he did for us, and I do pray that it would empower us to live as he lived, to walk in greater obedience, to lay our lives down for those around us, to be even the smallest picture of the grace and truth that we saw in Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together this morning.